Hey, this is uh, Current Yield Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air, and I'm Jim Grant, and with me, as per usual, Evan Lorenz, the great deputy editor of Grant's. Henry French is at the control panel. Evan, I've got a, I've got a plan for our podcast today, which, uh, and here's the, here's the plan. Tell me if this is crazy. We are not going to mention Elon Musk, the Abrams M1 tank, or misplaced top secret documents. I think it's crazy, but it might work. Yeah. And I get so tired of these recurring themes in the news, like Fed inflates. Yeah, 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 right. So uh, uh, documents. Uh, oh, we can disclose, I think, yeah, because after 4 o'clock Eastern time, we can disclose the nature of the cartoon on, the page, on page one of today's Grant's Interest Rate Observer. Are you ready? Go for well, it. You saw, you saw it too, right? Of course. Yeah, at least once. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, you have to laugh at it. That's the rule here. When I, when I describe a cartoon idea, it's imperative that people at least... Smile at me. Here it goes. Okay, so uh, the scene is a guy driving by one of these, uh, you know, uh, self-storage places. A great business, self-storage, by the way. Driving by a self-storage place, and you know what the name of the self-storage place is? Hmm. You know what it is? Uh, no. Uh, top secret self-storage. Okay, so in so everybody's lieu, found it. <laughs> in lieu of top secret documents, in lieu of Elon Musk, in lieu of the Abrams tank, we are going to discuss biotech uh, with none other than uh, Mark Schneidman, who is the founder. Chief Investment Officer and Managing Member and Portfolio Manager of uh, Aquilo Capital Management. That's A-Q-U-I-L-O. And uh, Mark founded it in uh, 2010. And he's got uh, one quarter century of experience in biotech, which I would say is a good start. I'm not saying that's, uh, I'm saying that's like the 40-yard line of a proper career. I'm speaking as a 76-year-old grown man. But Mark, welcome. Thank you, Jim, and thank you, Evan. I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, chat with you today. Yeah, well, um, we are intrigued because uh, Evan and I um, are kind of, uh, you know, uh, don't worship at the shrine of Benjamin Graham and David Dodd, but we do, uh, uh, we are, we're value-minded people, are we not, Evan? My wife calls me cheap. Yeah, frugal, <laughs> frugal is the word in our house. Uh, but we are value-minded investors, and we ordinarily one doesn't ordinarily think about uh, biotech as a value-rich uh, field of operations because uh, so many of the companies lack that essential thing in business, which is revenue. <laughs> so, Mark, explain this apparent paradox to us, please, before you get in and tell us about the opportunities and and what uh, and what rich people are going to do by uh, following in the footsteps of Aquila, or better still, investing in Aquila. No, absolutely. I appreciate that. I mean, you know, when I started my career, I, I started a firm called the Biotechnology Value Fund with Mark Lampert, who Mark founded. And uh, many people would laugh even at the name of the firm because uh, the idea that value in biotech would be uh, synonymous was an oxymoron to most people. And, you know, we have spent the last 25 years trying to explain that opportunity and the fact that most people don't see biotechnology, they see the sector as an area where there's a lot of catalysts, binary events, a lot of trading dynamics, means that a contrarian who takes a more value-based approach can find incredible opportunities. These are opportunities where there's a, a significant amount of intrinsic value that's been built up over a long period of time, and yet the price doesn't reflect that intrinsic value in the company. And because biotechnology for the average investor, even frankly, the sophisticated investor, is very, very difficult uh, to assess the value on a quantitative basis, most people don't try. 
um, because as you said, they don't have revenues yet. They don't have earnings. It's a very, very complex science. Um, and most people give up and just bet on the outcome of these binary events. Evan and I have had some experience in, in listening to people tell us about uh, uh, promising biotech opportunities. And almost, I think we're like over 16. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, neither, uh, Evan, I think, did not major in biochemistry. And, is that correct? Uh, pretty far from it. <laughs> well, look, I mean, 90% of drugs, you know, that are first going into the clinic ultimately fail. So, you know, that's a pretty good, uh, you know, you're, you're close to the statistics <laughs> in terms of uh, <laughs> how many don't make it. You know, we take a different approach because I am a value guy. I, I sort of see myself as sort of a Seth Klarman disciple or, you know, Graham and Dodd. And, you know, we think we are really good at defining where intrinsic value is. We can find companies where we can really quantify the margin of safety and the downside. I think ultimately that's where you start at defining what a value investor is. So we can find companies with a significant margin of safety and yet have, you know, what attracts a lot of people to biotech, which is that sort of three to five X upside or more when the drug actually works, makes it to the market and has a big impact for patients. So the fact that this sector is so inefficient and is so hard for the average investor uh, to analyze just the technical nature, you know, as I said, the lack of quantitative metrics make it for someone who's been doing it for a very long time, all the more interesting place to play. So uh, a typical value stock outside of biotech, I, I can describe it like this. It's probably trading at like seven times trailing earnings. It has net cash on the balance sheet and people hate it so much that they'd rather have a tooth pool than actually put it in their portfolio. What does like a generic good value position look like in biotech for you? Like what is kind of a generic stock that you would buy? Well, you know, so we think about valuation, you know, for the, the opportunities that we like in twofold. One is uh, where's the margin of safety? Where's your downside? That's a sum of the parts analysis based on the cash on the balance sheet, any existing products that are already on the markets where they're getting real revenue and earnings. And we can put a multiple on that and then maybe some platform value as well. So that sum of the parts is what gives us the uh, margin of safety and our downside. And then the upside has to be a discounted cash flow to future earnings that are, in my mind, sort of two to three years out, because it can't be so far out that you uh, can manipulate uh, the model to what you want it to say. It has to be you know, products that are going to generate significant near-term revenue and earnings, and that's defining your upside. So we like to find things that are very, very asymmetrical. That's kind of the generic investment for us. Something where your downside is very limited. You know, right now we'll talk about the uh, opportunity set as it currently exists, but there are lots of companies that I think are trading well below their floor, and yet still, as I said, have three to five x upside on a discounted cash flow to future earnings that are just two to three years out. And we have a lot of confidence in information to know the probability of achieving that success is very high. I asked Evan semi-facetiously whether he majored at uh, University of Chicago in uh, microbiology or something. But I see, um, Mark, I'm scanning now uh, the uh, capsule bios of people on your staff, and it's most formidable. Here we have a Yale PhD in uh, uh, biotechnology or related uh, fields, and we got a chemical engineer, and et, et cetera. So it seems to me that uh, that you do have the talent uh, to appraise uh, quality of the products and of the ingenuity that's going into the stock price. But uh, what 
volume, as it were, of, of uh, formidable intellect constitutes an edge in this business. You must be competing with other formidable people. How do you, how do you bring something different? Yeah, so, I mean, a lot of our differentiation is really in our methodology and approach. As I said, we try to avoid binary events. We try to avoid betting on the outcome of a clinical trial readout of an FDA regulatory decision, or sometimes even of those early commercial sales. What we want to find things that already have that intrinsic value built in. We have the data out there. The diligence that myself and our team does is not asking, is a drug you know, going to work or not? The diligence is, here's data. The drug completed its phase two, or it's completed its phase three, or it's even been approved. And we want to know from the experts out there, is that meaningful? Is that impactful for patients? Did it move the standard of care significantly in a way that patients will want to take this drug or physicians will want to prescribe it for their patients? And so our edge is to take existing data that's out there and ask you know, the important thought leaders in the field, you know, is this material and essentially what's the market missing? And we want to find those things, you know, again, that, that we're not betting on the outcome, the outcome's there in front of us, you know, the, the, the stock market for some reason, because this sector is sort of in my mind defined by the separation between intrinsic value and price, because price is not an accurate metric for intrinsic value in a biotech company. And that can diverge for long periods of time before it comes back together, you know, based on earnings and revenue. Mark, l- let me ask you this. Uh, typically, if there is a great disconnect between price and uh, and merit or value, uh, there, has, there was an antecedent, there was some preceding event, such as a bubble. Now, what preceded uh, what we gather to be a slump, unwarranted slump in biotech shares was, of course, the, the great boom in, uh, in uh, biotech hopes that attended the, the vaccines. Uh, not everyone endorses them, I guess. I hear that uh, coming out of uh, COVID-19. So tell us about the preceding bubble that has given us the opportunity. You're absolutely right. I mean, we had the largest bubble uh, that we've seen in biotech, although in my 25 years, I've lived through four or five of these similar uh, bubbles. And so there's a lot of pattern recognition. But between March of 2020 and March of 2021, we had uh, the most robust capital markets for biotechnology that we've ever seen. $68 billion was raised between IPOs and secondaries that flowed into what's a relatively small sector of 1,400 publicly traded companies globally. So $68 billion came in. Um, as you, you know, mentioned, it came on the tails of uh, the innovation around COVID vaccines, some of the therapeutics like Paxlovid and others, and just a general excitement about the area brought in a flood of capital. In my mind, a lot of it being from generalists who really, as I said, have a hard time evaluating what they're buying but because the sector was going up, almost all of the stocks within the uh, NASDAQ Biotech Index or the uh, XBI, the Biotech ETF, um, were rising rapidly with this huge influx of capital. It sort of lifted all boats with the tide. And the generalists continued to fuel that frenzy for a good 12 months. And, and then 
we had the biggest bust we've seen between March of 2021 and June of 2022. It was simply the worst bear market we've ever seen in biotech. Uh, stocks were down almost 64% uh, in that period of time. So just as fast as that capital had flown in from the generalists, it, it, it went the other way and the tide reversed and all boats went down. You know, we had over 200 companies that were trading less than their cash value. They, their market caps were less than the cash than they had in the balance sheet, sometimes 30, 40, 50% less. Um, and so, you know, that capital market dynama, dynamic, which I've seen before, where the, when the capital uh, flows in, it lifts all top boats. And when it leaves, you know, it sinks them all equally. And, and that's what we've just been through, the, you know, the most extreme example that this, you know, sector has faced in the last 25 or 30 years. So the, the market had the, this horrid sell-off between March of 2021 and June of 2022, and we've had somewhat of a recovery after then. Is there still a big opportunity there, or has some of the opportunity been already taken off the table? I, I know when we spoke off the air, you said there's been some divergence between larger biotech companies and smaller biotech companies. Could, could you kind of walk us through the lay of the land as you see it? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, the opportunity is still in the small and mid-cap space. You know, the, uh, the recovery began at the top. Uh, with the large uh, pharmaceutical companies and the drug index, and then spread to the larger biotech companies um, that um, um, had probably you know the best year with of, of you know in a relatively poor year 2022. Uh, we have seen some M and A activity um, in the second half of 2022, which has you know started to help some of the recovery. Um, we've also seen a direct correlation between some positive clinical catalysts and stock price moves. We've seen some financing on the backs of those. Um, and those are some of the tea leaves that we're reading to say there, there definitely has been a change in the market. And there's beginning to be a shift when the very, very early days, I would guess, that capital markets is not open broadly by any stretch of the imagination. There are almost 60% of publicly traded biotech companies today have less than two years of cash on the balance sheet. And so, you know, if that capital market doesn't open more broadly in 2023, you know, I would argue that we're going to see in a, a period of time when there's a lot of distressed asset sales, a lot of, you know, forced mergers, and frankly, companies that are going to go out of business because they're the uh, less quality companies the products that shouldn't have been funded probably in the first place are going to have a very hard time accessing capital. Mark, I want to uh, get down to brass tacks and ask you about a particular stock or two in a second. But first, um, as we say in TV land or radio land, a word from our sponsor, which happens to be Grant's Interest Rate Observer. It has come to our attention that not every listener of uh, Current Yield is a subscriber to Grant's Interest Rate Observer. But I think I know how to address that problem. And that is to invite you uh, to email me at uh, Grants, and I will send you a curated uh, PDF of five, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight uh, Grants articles uh, from the past, you know, recent, uh, that I think uh, show us off in, uh, at our very best, which is pretty good. And uh, you'll receive those, and if you like what you read, as I hope you will, email me back, and we'll put you in touch with our 
ever welcoming subscription department, and I will send you a book, uh, either one that I've written, and you can kind of pick the title, or the new one by Bill Cohen, Power Failure. It's a marvelous, uh, big, big book, uh, History of General Electric, and he generously quotes grants throughout. It was one of our projects over the past 25 years. So as I say, write to me. I am uh, Jim Grant at, in the, uh, at Grants, and here is the email address, jgrant at grantspub, G-R-A-N-T-S-P-U-B dot com. jgrant at grantspub dot com. I look forward to hearing from you and, uh, and to counting you a member of the uh, Grants Interest Rate Observer family. So, uh, yeah. Now, back to biotech. I'm, I'm intrigued by one of the uh, stocks that I know that you own and like and indeed perhaps uh, regard as one of your favorites, uh, something called Unicure, which is Amsterdam-based and trades on the NASDAQ. And my due diligence on this particular name, Mark, insisted of looking at the stock chart. <laughs> and, and I see it was uh, 82 in 2019, and it's not quite 22 today. That's, that's three and a half years of uh, down from 82 to 22. And um, it sounds on its face just by the price action as if something is desperately wrong, but perhaps something is fundamentally wrong with the market's perception. So I, I think I know which one you think is the case, but we would like to hear it from you. No, absolutely. You know, in my view, this is a perfect example of this disconnect between intrinsic value and price. Last year, they had a phenomenal year sort of in the history of this company you know, arguably the best year ever in terms of creating intrinsic value, because most importantly, they got their lead gene therapy product for hemophilia B uh, approved at the end of the year. Uh, it's partnered to what we think would be the best partner possible for this drug, which is CSL Bearing. They're the leading blood products company in the world based in Australia. And here's a company that, you know, got their uh, lead drug approved after many years of uh, trials. It's a very, very important drug for patients, for sure. They demonstrated very positive clinical data uh, in Huntington's disease, which is sort of the next big drug in their pipeline. Uh, they have a very, very solid balance sheet, which is well over $600 million today. And yet the stock hasn't moved at all, or it's moved in the inverse direction. It's trading at a markup that's less than a billion dollars today. So even though they had a year when they executed extremely well, arguably created a lot of intrinsic value, the stock hasn't reacted at all. So when you asked a minute ago whether there are still opportunities, absolutely. And, and I'm happy to take a step back and describe Unicure in a little bit more detail. Well, just, just tell us what, what makes it go up. Well, here's one that's you know at the commercial stage. So this drug is about to be launched by their partner. They'll, when they treat the first patient in the U.S., they'll receive a $100 million milestone. They have double-digit, high double-digit royalties on the sale of this drug, and yet they don't pay anything for the uh, commercialization or development. It's all on CSL's nickel. So what makes the stock go up is we're within you know, months, if not quarters, from generating real product revenue and earnings um, that this company hasn't uh, had previously. And so investors, even like yourselves, who have a hard time evaluating you know, biotechnology products, I think will be able to see you know, the significant 
revenue and earnings because essentially they're going from zero product revenue today to what could be hundreds of millions of dollars you know, in the next several quarters. And my view is growth investors will find them. Okay, this is a Unicure, the ticker is Q-U-R-E, that's on NASDAQ. And, and Mark, maybe you can tell us about the, uh, the, the ROI for patients and for payers. So is this something like a statin where like, if I have high cholesterol, I, I take this every day and I, I live a little bit longer and kind of like, what is a payoff for kind of payers? Like why would they want to have their patients take this in order to actually, you know, improve their lifespans and lower their costs? So hemophilia B is a, a terrible disease, mostly of young men. Um, Hemophilia in general is uh, there's a prevalence of roughly 35 to 40,000. Uh, that's between hemophilia A and B in the United States. And hemophilia B is probably 20% of that. This is, as I said, you get it as a, a young man and you live with it throughout the course of what's a relatively normal lifespan, but you need to be on blood products that help with clotting because this is a, a clotting disease where you don't have the proper clotting factors. And so you get these spontaneous bleeds that affect your muscles and organs and joints and other things. And so patients today who are treated by companies like CSL who offer these blood products for clotting, you know, uh, a patient today is spending roughly $600,000 a year and as I said, they have a relatively normal course of life uh, in terms of lifespan. This is a single injection through a very specific AAV gene vector. So, but the, the, the important part to know is it's a single injection that then is curative. So it's a one-time treatment and you, if not get off the blood products, you reduce them very, very significantly. And as I said, it, it's essentially curative. You now have the ability, your, a hemophilia B patient has the ability to produce the necessary clotting factors to avoid these bleeding events. I see that you go both uh, long and short in your fund. Tell us about uh, uh, the uh, prevalence of good ideas on each side. Are you finding more of one than the other? You know, I think at the moment we're finding way more long ideas. I mean, as I said, I mean, the, uh, the biotech stocks are down 60 to 70 percent. Uh, we are finding really high quality companies with solid balance sheets. Sort of the, we always say we look for four key pillars in all of our investments. And those four pillars start with financial strength and platform technologies. I mean, they have a competitive advantage, a way of making drugs. Uh, with broad, broad pipelines, and you know, oftentimes uh, a great partner in terms of a big pharmaceutical company. So I'm finding those high quality companies that have basically been thrown out with the bathwater. And so, as the average stock is down sixty or seventy percent, so are some of these very high qualities. That's where we're focused on. On the short side, we like to find things that are eight. You know, we we like playing these binary events, these single product companies that have you know um, a high probability unfortunately of failure and we look for the ones where success is already priced in so they're already trading at a three four five billion dollar market cap the problem in the market today is not that we can't find some of these opportunities it's that they're already down 50 60 percent with the beta of the market and that makes it challenging to argue that they are truly asymmetrical asymmetrical in a short meaning that 
if we're wrong about and our diligence is wrong, it's really not going to hurt us because success is already baked in. But if we're right, we can make 70 or 80 percent of our money because it's a single product company and the product failed. So they no longer have anything left. Can you quickly walk us through just another example of a great value laden long that kind of paints out the, the, the opportunities that investors who have the background and wherewithal to actually do the work can discover and actually profit from? Yeah, I particularly like this company, which I think is uh, uh, extremely attractive. It's one where also had a lot of intrinsic value um, captured last year. That's just not reflected in the stock price at all. And that's Blueprint Medicine. BPMC is the stock uh, uh, ticker on NASDAQ. Uh, this is a company that also has a commercial product. They actually have two commercial products. Um, it's uh, very, very much focused on precision medicine oncology. We're in, in a you know renaissance in terms of drug discovery, in terms of molecular and genetic medicine. After you know the sequencing of the human genome twenty years ago, which really gave us the blueprint for how diseases work and what causes disease. This is a company that's taken advantage of that blueprint. So their lead drug that's on the market today is a drug called avapritinib. It's for, you know, these are all complicated disease called uh, advanced systemic mastocytosis, uh, ASM. That's on the market today. It sold $180 million in the um, uh, second year of launch in uh, 2022. Um, and that's a relatively orphan disease, advanced systemic mastocytosis. It's a disease of mast cells, which are an important immune cell in the body. And these are patients that have a very specific mutation in those mast cells. The more exciting thing, what happened last year, just a few months ago, is that the much bigger opportunity for this drug is in the indolent form of the disease. It's almost 10 times the size of patients uh, that have a less aggressive form. They presented very, very good safety data and extremely exciting efficacy in the indolent form of the disease in a trial called the Pioneer trial. Just two days ago, the FDA accepted with accelerated approval their uh, new drug application. And so this drug, you know, we expect will have the expanded label because it's already on the market for the advanced form, but we'll have the expanded label in the advanced form with a PDUFA date of May 23rd. Why that's exciting is because, as I said, it, it's a much, much bigger, almost 10 times the patient population and prevalence. And so this is a one to $1.5 billion opportunity, which they have the data in hand. We've done a tremendous amount of diligence to know the probability of getting to the market is extremely high in terms of this expanded indication. The reason why Blueprint is a value opportunity today is because they have $1.2 billion of cash. They have six other drugs in the clinic in clinical development. They have a very lucrative deal with Roche, the big Swiss pharmaceutical company. And now they have the phase three data in hand that indicates they have you know, essentially a blockbuster drug above a billion dollars in sales. And that drug will begin to create significant revenues and earnings for a company that's trading at $2.8 billion valuation today and where the stock is down over you know, 55% over the last 12 months, even though, as I said, they've created this incredible amount of intrinsic value. Hey, Mark Schneidman, thank you for being with us. It was uh, interesting and, de and I'll go further. Intriguing. Glad you were with us. Evan, nice to see you. And 
Don't you think that, Evan, because we closed an issue of Glance last night, a fabulous issue, by the way, that the two of us deserve some sort of commendation, if not a medal, for being upright and semi-alert at 4 o'clock Eastern Time, p.m.? I could certainly use a coffee. Well, it's kind of a slush toy. Yes, thank you. Um, Henry French, thank you for being with us, too. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Jim Grant, on behalf of Current Yield, Grant's interest rate observer of the air. (laughs) 